0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, November 12th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: First, we'll talk about Pfizer's groundbreaking COVID-19 vaccine results. And Dr. Natalie Dean, a biostatistician from the University of Florida, joins us to explain the data.
2: Then we're going to spend the rest of the episode examining the twists and turns in the FDA's review of Biogen's experimental Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab. First, we'll be joined by Johns Hopkins physician Caleb Alexander. He was one of the outside experts who voted against aducanumab during last week's FDA advisory meeting.
0: Then we'll hear from somebody living with Alzheimer's. Jeff Borgoff participated in one of Biogen's clinical trials and received aducanumab. He'll join us to share his thoughts on what should happen with the drug.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay, the Chief Revenue Officer of STAT. The coronavirus pandemic has prompted the healthcare community to find new approaches to help. The COVID-19 Plasma Alliance includes 13 companies developing a medicine made from plasma that may become an important COVID-19 treatment. I'm here with Julie Kim from Takeda, who co-leads the alliance. Julie, what are the advantages of working together as an alliance?
3: Hi Angus, thanks for the question. The Alliance is developing a medicine called a hyperimmune that's made with convalescent plasma from people who survived COVID-19 because their plasma contains special antibodies that can fight off the disease. We're combining our expertise and infrastructure to develop it faster, to make more of it, and potentially save more lives. We also joined The Fight Is In Us, a coalition that is creating broader public awareness of the urgent need for convalescent plasma donation than would have been possible as individual companies. So please visit thefightisinus.org to learn how you can help.
1: We'd be remiss if we didn't start this podcast with what was arguably the biggest news in the world this week. Pfizer executives are calling it one of the biggest medical breakthroughs in the past 100 years. A COVID vaccine developed in just six months.
0: In early data from an ongoing study, Pfizer's vaccine was more than 90 percent effective at preventing cases of COVID-19. So how do they know that? Well, they saw 94 cases of COVID in the trial, and most of them were among people who got the placebo, suggesting the vaccine was strongly protective.
2: It goes without saying that this was welcome news around the world as it suggests that we could be months away from having a vaccine that could help bring an end to the coronavirus pandemic. It was also a huge coup for Pfizer and its partner BioNTech. Meg, you spoke to Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla earlier this week. Uh, Let's hear what he had to say about the data.
4: Uh, It is a a great day for science. It is a great day for humanity. When you realize that uh, your vaccine has a 90% effectiveness, overwhelming.
0: So beyond all the positive headlines about Pfizer's vaccine, there's a lot of nuance involved when it comes to interpreting this kind of news. So joining us to explain some of the important details is Dr. Natalie Dean, an assistant professor of biostatistics at the University of Florida. Natalie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
2: So Natalie, the figure we've all been focused on is that 90%, which is what Pfizer described as the vaccine efficacy observed in the trial. What does that number mean in practical terms?
3: These vaccine trials enroll tens of thousands of participants. But even though we have these large numbers, we only expect to observe relatively few cases. These are the people who actually in their communities uh, become infected and become sick with COVID-19. The way we assess the efficacy of the vaccine is by looking at how those cases split across the vaccine and the placebo arm. And that 90% means that there are 90% fewer cases in the vaccine arm relative to the placebo arm.
1: So we understand that the Pfizer vaccine was effective at preventing symptomatic disease, but we still don't know the extent to which it protects against severe COVID-19 disease. Why is that distinction important?
3: So we have to make a decision about, you know, what is the primary endpoint of the trial? You know, and that's, that's based on practical considerations and also sort of our public health question of interest. And of course, we're very interested in a vaccine that's able to prevent severe disease. But the challenge with that is that it occurs much less frequently than, um, than just symptomatic disease. And so, you know, there's a balance if we have to wait until a trial can accrue the numbers that we would need to establish a vaccine effect on severe disease, it could take, you know, much longer. And usually those things are quite related. So if a vaccine is able to prevent symptomatic disease, we expect it to have um, an effect on uh, severe disease.
0: We also don't know, of course, if the vaccine prevents infection or just disease. Can you tell us about why that's so important?
3: Absolutely. So the primary endpoint is symptomatic disease. So the individuals have to have a certain set of symptoms along with a laboratory-confirmed infection. And the reason it's the primary endpoint is symptomatic disease is because that's what reflects you know, mostly the public health burden. Of of this particular virus is you know disease that's what we want to prevent and infection of course is of great interest but it's also kind of a higher bar for vaccines there are vaccines that are able to prevent disease or reduce the severity of disease but are aren't entirely able to prevent infection uh, we would still want to use those vaccines they add public health value but we will be looking closely to see at whether these vaccines um, are able to prevent infection you can assess that using Um, laboratory data. um, And that will have a bearing on whether individuals will be infectious to others, um, which all relates to to herd immunity.
2: So looking forward, there's also a key distinction between vaccine efficacy and vaccine effectiveness. How are those things different? and, And why is that distinction important?
3: Vaccine efficacy refers to the idealized biological estimate of how well the vaccine works. Really, we only estimate this from phase three trials. So phase three trials are highly controlled. And so we can look in these idealized settings and see how well the vaccine works. But once we get onto the real world and vaccination programs, things are not as perfect. And that's what we talk about effectiveness as being the real world estimate. And usually that will tend to be lower because it will reflect that maybe not everyone receives, you know, the full dosing or the dosing at the correct time, or there's some, you know, the cold chain is not preserved perfectly or something. So we can think about the efficacy as sort of an upper estimate of how well the vaccine works.
1: As we've said before, the Pfizer result is from an interim analysis, meaning there's a lot more data to come. What will you be looking for as we get more details on this vaccine's effects?
3: I'm particularly interested in the secondary endpoints. That's useful because it will enable us to look at different subgroups. That trial population includes different groups, younger adults, older adults, adults with certain comorbidities. I'm very interested in seeing how that efficacy, you know, holds up across those different groups. We'll have less data because we're sort of cutting, um, splicing, and dicing because sometimes we do have vaccines that work better in, you know, one population than the other. They may not work for an older immune system. Um, I also want to see the data on severe disease. I want to see that laboratory data on infection and yeah, all of the other sort of the immune response data. I'll be looking to see if maybe there's sort of a particular level of an immune response that is predictive of preventing disease. And that will have bearing for the development of future products as well, if we can find something called a, like a correlate of protection. So um, there's a lot of things I, I'd like
2: to see. So Natalie, last question, arguably maybe should have been uh, our first question, but what was your reaction to seeing that 90% efficacy? Like, what do you think it means for the impact of this vaccine and, and perhaps other vaccines could have on the pandemic?
3: It was a, you know, some good news and some, some very welcome good news. I think we really didn't know where to place the efficacy of these vaccines on a spectrum. I mean, we had set this lower bound. You know, we want to see at least 50% efficacy. And that was because we really had to make a decision. What are we planning for? And when does the vaccine start to become worthwhile for the effort of rolling it out? And so the 50% was that target, but it was a lower bound. And we really didn't know because this is a new virus where to place efficacy on this range up all the way up to 100%. And so 90% definitely exceeds expectations. Of course, we want to see how it breaks across all these subgroups, but overall, clearly something is working. And that has bearing upon the other vaccines as well, because they're all targeting the same Virus, the same, you know, spike protein. So that, you know, boosts my confidence in, in, um, what we think might happen with these other vaccines in development because we also want more than one vaccine to be available, um, to meet, to meet global needs. So that was very encouraging.
2: Natalie, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: And Dr. Anthony Fauci actually stole Moderna's thunder on that announcement earlier the same day speaking at FT's Global Pharmaceutical and Biotechnology Conference.
1: One of the things I've learned over the decades, as it were, that I've been involved in vaccines that don't ever get overconfident and don't assume anything, but it just makes logical sense that if you're dealing with a candidate vaccine that is almost identical, in fact, identical in many respects, to what defies the Pfizer product, I would really be surprised if we did not see a high degree of efficacy. You know, it may not be 95%, it might be 90 or 96 or 89, but it's going to be up there. I'm fairly certain it's going to be up there.
2: So that is setting the bar pretty high. And uh, apparently, very soon we'll find out whether that's accurate.
1: We've spent a lot of time on this podcast recently talking about Biogen's Alzheimer's drug that's called aducanumab, and for good reason. Millions of Americans suffer from Alzheimer's. So the need for an effective medicine is desperate in both human and economic terms.
2: So for Biogen, there's the opportunity to help patients, but also a huge potential financial windfall if its drug were to be approved.
0: Which brings us to last Friday, when a panel of outside medical experts brought together by the FDA concluded almost unanimously that clinical data did not support the approval of aducanumab.
1: So to refresh memories, Biogen conducted two large phase three studies that were initially stopped early because aducanumab seemed unlikely to slow the cognitive decline decline in Alzheimer's patients. Months later, however, a reanalysis of the data showed that one of the two studies appeared to show a benefit. While the other did not.
0: For the FDA's internal clinical review team, this mixed bag of data was strong enough to justify the drug's approval. But 10 of 11 panelists who reviewed the same data during the advisory committee meeting said no. One positive study was not enough to demonstrate the drug's efficacy. The other panelists voted
2: uncertain. The overwhelmingly negative outcome of that advisory committee meeting puts the FDA in a real bind. Approving aducanumab means ignoring the strong recommendation of its own outside advisors and perhaps damaging the agency's credibility as an independent regulator. However, rejecting the drug or asking Biogen to conduct another clinical trial means disappointing Alzheimer's patients and their families.
1: So we want to examine these issues more deeply from both sides. Joining us first is Caleb Alexander, a physician and epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University. Caleb was one of the experts invited by FDA to review aducanumab. Caleb, welcome to The Read Out Loud.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: So you voted either no or uncertain on all of the questions about aducanumab that were posed by the FDA during the advisory committee. Can you explain why you believe the drug should not be approved to treat Alzheimer's disease based on the data presented?
5: At the end of the day, you know, these uh, decisions have to be made based on the science that's presented. I mean, that has to be the true north. And I simply didn't feel, uh, having reviewed the entirety of materials, that there was uh, sufficient evidence of safety and efficacy. And that's the statutory standard, and that's the standard for good reason. So it it just fell short uh, along a number of different dimensions.
2: Looking at the documents that the FDA presented, the agency's clinical reviewers were very supportive of educandumab, going as far to call the data, quote, robust and exceptionally persuasive. But the assessment from the biostatisticians at the FDA was the polar opposite. They were sharply negative and said the aducanumab data were not convincing enough to justify approval. During one of the discussions, you likened this discordance to, quote, audio and video that are out of sync. What do you think is going on inside the FDA?
5: Well, it's a great question. And I think I did uh, refer to the entirety of the materials that the FDA provided as uh, what I believe I called strikingly incongruent. In other words, it was very hard to reconcile. With that being said, you know, the FDA or any given uh, group within the FDA that reviews one of these products is not a single person, and it's not uncommon to have uh, some disagreement within the FDA or on any review team Regarding, uh, specific features of an application. So I think that the, the level of discordance was perhaps a bit, uh, greater here and a, perhaps a bit more stark than is often the case. But this is team science. But I do think that, uh, one of the things that I was looking for out of the day was really clear explanations, uh, in response to the many, concerns that were raised by the FDA's uh, biostatistical reviewer. And I didn't hear that either on the part of the medical reviewer uh, at the FDA or the sponsor.
0: So there were concerns expressed by you and some of the other panel members about the FDA acting more like a corporate collaborator working to assist Biogen rather than as an independent regulator. Do you believe FDA's credibility has been damaged by the way it worked with Biogen here?
5: I don't. I mean, that's that's really not for me to judge. But what I can say is that I think the FDA, frankly, deserves credit for having uh attempted to assist Biogen in ways that they may have. I did feel, you know, there was a single uh, briefing packet that was provided. And in contrast to what has uh, always been the case in every other advisory committee I've participated in, where the sponsor provides one packet and the FDA provides another. And I did comment on the record that I I think I would have preferred uh, to have had two separate briefing documents or if not uh, at the, at a minimum, a briefing document that the FDA prepared with a sponsor providing a commentary rather than vice versa. But, you know, ultimately, I think the FDA, you know, is a remarkable institution, and it is widely regarded as the um, the, the gold standard as far as regulators go for good reason. But I, I think that the FDA and Biogen uh, worked hard to try to make sense of, of of conflicting data. And, you know, there was a fairly strong consensus among the Advisory committee that the evidence simply wasn't sufficient uh, uh, to establish a uh, substantial evidence of efficacy.
1: So I'm just going to press you a little bit on this topic because I think that there were times during the you know the seven hours of the meeting where uh, you know Billy Dunn, who's the FDA's top neuroscience regulator, he sort of came across as kind of being kind of having his mind made up and was sort of asking. The panel members, you, you know, you included for basically to support that decision. And, and, then, and then there was a lot of pushback, I think, from, you know, you and others who, you know, were, you know, didn't want to be kind of rubber stamp. You, you felt like that there were times uh, when, you know, your criticisms or your concerns were not being addressed. You know, what was going on there kind of maybe, I don't know, behind the scenes or were we correct in kind of reading that dynamic?
5: Our job as advisory committee members is to dispassionately evaluate the totality of information that's provided to us and to try to assist uh, the FDA in, in making sense of it. And I think that that's what we did. So I really don't view these as adversarial. Uh, I go into these committees with an open mind. Uh, they're always uh, informative. I have served as chair of this particular committee in the past, and I love beginning when I'm chair by saying all of us are smarter than any of us. And I truly believe that. So, you know, the, the committee, uh, I think, did its job.
2: So it goes without saying that Alzheimer's is a terrible disease without effective treatments or disease-modifying treatments. And during the meeting, we heard emotional and often heart-wrenching testimony from people either suffering with Alzheimer's or, or who had family members or people within their care who were. Um, and they almost universally expressed support for aducanumab and asked the FDA and the experts on the panel to, to approve it or to recommend to approve it. What kind of effect... Does that have on you, you know, as a panelist, as you witness that? And, and, you know, what would you say to those people to explain how you voted on the evidence that was presented?
5: It's an important question. It's a vitally important question. And their testimony is part of what makes this application, as well as others for Alzheimer's disease, so important to get right. You know, it's important because of the precedent that's set. Uh, because of what it conveys to the scientific and clinical community as well as marketplace about the evidentiary thresholds for approval in this disease space. And it's important because of the, uh, the, the devastating impact that Alzheimer's has on so many. But it's in nobody's interest to have a product on the market that doesn't meet, uh, statutory thresholds of efficacy and safety. And so I think, um, I think and hope that the committee made its views clear on, on this particular product. But I think it's very helpful to hear from, from individuals such as those that provided testimony.
0: So what kind of data would convince you that aducanumab can be an effective and safe treatment for Alzheimer's disease?
5: I think one really can't sort of look beyond that basic fact that there were two identical trials designed, and, and a futility analysis was done, and it was declared futile. And then post hoc, there was an effort to go back and see if one could make sense of the data. So, you know, the committee identified any number of red threads raising concerns about the totality of evidence. I would want to see, you know, most basically another trial done that is convincing and that doesn't have many of the concerns that were raised by the two trials that were done with respect to the the strength of the evidence.
0: Judging by the the way the FDA just kind of seemed to have gone in there with its mind made up already and it, it did the joint report with Biogen, et cetera. I'm just curious to know your thoughts. Why did they even call an advisory committee meeting, do you think, for this?
5: I think in this instance, there was fair reason to call the committee. Uh, you had a, an unusual setting where there was a futility analysis that was performed. There were two pivotal trials that were identically designed Mind, one of which was positive and one of which wasn't and I think there was some nuance here to sort through and I hope that our feedback helps the FDA in doing so.
2: Caleb thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: And now a different but equally important perspective on aducanumab. Jeff Borgoff uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2016 at the age of 51. He participated in the Biogen clinical trial and later found out that he had been randomized to receive injections of aducanumab. Now, as you can imagine, Jeff has been following the FDA review of the drug very closely, and he joins us now to share his thoughts on the events of last week. Jeff, welcome to the Read Out Loud.
4: Oh, thanks very much. I'm very happy to be here with you this morning.
0: So Jeff, um, start by telling us maybe about your diagnosis with Alzheimer's and what impact the disease has had on your life.
4: Certainly. So, you know, obviously being diagnosed with a terminal disease can be a real gut punch. You have to begin to take things uh, into a perspective uh, about the remainder of your life. One of those things is, uh, you know, kind of uh, figuring out what the priorities are for you. One of the things that uh, I wanted to do after my uh, diagnosis uh, very strongly was get involved with a clinical trial. And I did so. Uh, I got involved with the Alzheimer's Association and I found a trial right near my home, um, and it happened to be the biogen Aducanumab trial. I was uh, tested and enrolled um, into the uh, phase three of the trial. I was on the trial for 36 months uh, when uh, unfortunately it was um, uh, terminated due to some uh, futility analysis. And then in, of course, uh, October of the same year, we got the great news that the uh, trials were going to begin again under the name of Embark, and I am coming up on my 10th infusion in two weeks.
2: And so, Jeff, as you've mentioned before, you know, you feel like the drug works, that it was having a positive effect on you. So what was your experience from, you know, from the outset of those first trial and then uh, obviously into the extension trial?
4: So I found out at the termination of the original trial, I believe I was, I was titrating in the uh, eMERGE uh, trial. And I believed that the drug was working um, because I found out uh, after the trial ended that I was on the medication the entire time. I was not in the placebo control. And if you're unfamiliar, being diagnosed at a, such a young age, age of 51, uh, with a, a younger onset, early stage, the prognosis isn't good for uh, for such a, a, an early age. Myself and my entire family were very concerned because of that, that I would uh, progress very rapidly. But when I was uh, enrolled into the trial uh, and then was on the trial for those 36 months, we believe sincerely that my decline, uh, was, uh, was actually not progressing as fast as we had thought it would. And we were very encouraged by the medication. So needless to say, when it was terminated in March of uh, 2019, it was uh, heart-wrenching and and quite a blow.
1: So, Jeff, you spoke at the advisory committee meeting. uh, And I wonder, what, what was it like hearing the analysis from the experts on the advisory panel talking about the data and then seeing the vote so solidly against the drug?
4: I was only able to hear what the scientists were saying uh after the the open uh, public hearing you know it's for the hour that i was on for the open public hearing there must have been maybe 20 people uh if not more who were living uh with alzheimer's uh, and their loved ones basically testifying that aducanumab had really helped their loved ones It was a significant appeal that these people uh, were making, including folks from Us Against Alzheimer's and uh, the Alzheimer's Association. And for me, you know, hearing that just reinforced what I believed all along about the medication. And then after the open public hearing, I had such a great feeling, you know, I I felt so positive to hear that. And then the scientists uh, got on, uh, the advisors got on, and it, it seemed to just p- completely fall apart. I couldn't believe it was the same FDA uh, hearing. It just—they really just tore it apart. And they, and I think what they were tearing apart was the the data and the way that the data was presented um, from BioGen. However, um, I I had felt uh, in my in my layman's uh, view, that Biogen had did, done a fantastic job. I was encouraged that they came back in October saying that they did the additional large-scale analysis. I mean, that just only proves to me that they believe that the drug works and that uh, they're willing to, to continue to move forward to get FDA approval. So it's it kind of bizarre uh, after the uh, open public hearing.
0: Well, you know, we spoke with one of the members of the panel, Caleb Alexander, who told us that testimony like yours and and the others that you just mentioned is why it's so important for regulators to get the review of these drugs right. And he said it's in no one's interest except perhaps company shareholders for the drug to be approved when it doesn't meet standards showing it works and it's safe. How do you respond to that?
4: I believe in science and that statement I, I agree with and it is a compelling statement. My greatest fear is at this point is that this medication will be shelved entirely It won't be given its due to continue the trial uh specifically the embark trial and perhaps another placebo controlled uh, double blind study for another period of time. It is my firm belief that we need to move forward and continue to collect the data that will satisfy uh, the FDA and satisfy these advisors to say that that this uh, medication worked. So then, what you'll have at that point is you'll have the empirical data, and then you'll have the anecdotal data, and that's what we want. I believe in the efficacy of the medication. I've been in it for almost four years. I have had no side effects from it whatsoever. I tend to uh, acknowledge and understand that that particular advisor had had said that. I believe that we should continue to move forward for its af- approval.
2: So, Jeff, you mentioned yeah, the desire for perhaps a third placebo-controlled trial that would maybe confirm some of the things that are being debated now. Do you think that the FDA should approve aducanumab now as it stands or that they should wait for perhaps the results of such a trial?
4: That's a great question. I believe that the FDA, in some form or fashion, should approve the medication for folks that could really use it. And when I say really use it, I believe folks that are in the very early stages of the disease. And I believe that, you know, people should have the right to try this medication. It's a compelling thought because this is the only medication that we know of that has been proven to slow the decline of this disease. Because of this medication, I still have Potentially years with my wife who I've only been married to for 14 years later in our lives I've got you know young adult children. My middle daughter just got married. I'm looking forward to grandchildren I believe this medication can give me the years that I need to be present in their lives and I believe that others should have that too so If you would ask me, should the FDA approve some sort of aducanumab for general consumption, I would have to say yes to that. However, to satisfy the naysayers and the skeptics, it's possible that an additional placebo-controlled double-blind study would be prudent.
0: Well, Jeff, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks again.
0: does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
4: Before we kick out of here, a couple
1: of housekeeping notes. We realize that we didn't talk about perhaps the largest world event in the last week. That is the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. But trust us, we will get
2: to it. Also, another major event happening next week is Stats' annual summit. So we've got a week full of speakers and panels and discussions about the future of health and medicine, including people like Bill Gates, Tony Fauci, Jennifer Doudna, Uh, Emma Walmsley, just to name a few. If you want more information on that or to uh, buy a pass to tune into it, you can go to statnews.com slash summit.
0: Thank you to Alex Hogan and Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode.
1: Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you plan on getting a vaccine when it's available. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at
2: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.